1969, the average tour of duty for an American service member in the Vietnam War was 12 months. The average age was 19. Tonight's guest, Douglas Hubbard, was supporting Navy and Marine Corps assets in Vietnam for three years. He has an amazing tale to tell. And he's the author of two books. One, NCIS History, Special Agent Vietnam, and the other, Bound for Africa, Cold War Along the Zambezi. I hope you enjoy tonight's show. It's an incredible story about an incredible adventure in a three-part series. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the story of Special Agent Douglas Hubbard. Today, we have a special guest, one that I'm excited um, to be interviewing, uh, a guy who is, um, he's an author of two books, NCIS History, Special Agent Vietnam, and Bound for Africa, Cold War Fight Along the Zambezi. Um, and it is a pure pleasure to interview Douglas Hubbard today. Um, I've heard Doug's name since about 2006 when I first saw the book. Of course, I ran out and bought it uh, just before I deployed to Iraq uh, because I wanted to get a feel for what it would be like to be an agent in a war zone. And uh, his book, if you haven't read it, you need to buy this book and you need to read it because it really lays down um, a great theme of how frustrating it can be to be a criminal investigator in a war zone. So with that said, I want to welcome Douglas Hubbard to the podcast today. And it's great to have you, Doug. Thank you. Very nice to be here. And uh, I appreciate your interest. Thank you, sir. And uh, what I'd like to do today is kind of what I like to do with all these podcasts is I like to kind of get a sense of your history, of where you're from, um, and how um, you became interested in, in NIS or ONI NIS back in the day. Um, so if you could tell me you're from, are you originally from California? Well, I was born in California, but I've been kind of a nomad my whole life. I'm back in California now, mm -hmm. but there was a long progression there. Sure. And you, um, so you, you grew up in Southern, uh, mid, uh, mid California, Fresno, or were you, uh, what part of California did you grow up in? Well, uh, it's, it sort of, there's a little bit of background here, Lee, I'll give it okay. to you in a nutshell. Okay. I was born in Pasadena, um, on the day the Marines invaded Okinawa. Okay. Uh, also Easter Sunday. Um, my dad was deployed a, a junior officer on a DE somewhere around there. Um, mm -hmm. So no dad around. Uh, my dad, my dad's background is kind of interesting in itself. He, he was the son of two academics. Uh, my paternal grandfather, UC Berkeley, PhD. Mm -hmm. uh, grandmother was Stanford class of 17. Dad went to Fresno State because his Dad was an educator in Fresno in those days, and then graduated from Berkeley and then went to Texas A&M and did a master's degree. Mm -hmm. And because he wanted to join the National Park Service, uh, he went aboard with the U.S. Border Patrol. Okay. Uh, back in the battle days of Charlie Askins and those gunfighters on the Texas border. Mm -hmm. And they didn't want to let him go, but he wanted to, he wanted to do his service. And finally, in 43... Uh, the Border Patrol let him go, and he went off to OCS and and later joined the DE, Joseph E. Connolly, as I recall she was called, mm -hmm. uh, and deployed to the Pacific. So I uh, dad wasn't around when I was born. He came back in 
46 and the Park Service took him up right away, sent him to Friant Dam, which is no longer a Park Service concern um, near Fresno. Um, we were there about two years and then uh, transferred to Hawaii Volcanoes oh, wow. National Park. Uh, yeah. And dad did a lot of interesting stuff there. He did some of the early research on Captain Cook's demise, found one of the cannonballs from the Endeavor. And uh, I, I had a pretty interesting uh, young upbringing from age two to seven in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. Started school at KK Alani School in shorts, t-shirt, and no shoes. <laughs> so in 52, uh, we were transferred to Yosemite National Park. Wow. And dad became the associate park naturalist there was the XO, if you like. Sure. And we were, uh, we were in Yosemite for, I think, almost 14 years, which is very unusual. The, the Park Service transfers people like the Navy does usually, but um, dad eventually made it to the top dog spot and his real specialty was building and improving museums. He was an interpreter. That was really his, he was a storyteller and an author. He, he wrote quite a bit. My mother wrote too. Um, my mother would have been a, 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 a fine classical pianist had my dad not married her at a, at a tender age. Um, she was at Occidental on a full music scholarship when they met. So uh, anyway, life in Yosemite. Wow. What can I say? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you about that. What a great place to grow up. I mean, I've visited with my wife. Yeah. And we were just, it's such a beautiful place. I can't imagine spending 14 years there. Well, uh, the quarters, quarter 66, where I grew up, was two-tenths of a mile from the base of Yosemite Falls. Oh, wow. So in the springtime, all the windows rattled. And uh, the grammar school was uh, 300 meters away, I guess. So uh, we'd walk there, run there to school could hear the bell ringing we were late mm -hmm. I talked to thing um very much an outdoor I, I I was active in scouts my dad had been an eagle scout went to the world jamboree in Godola Hungary in 1933 wow. which yeah interesting stuff uh at age 15 and actually uh I became an eagle scout when I was 15 as well good on you uh a lot of that because of the people that I was around. Remember when I got to Yosemite, the Second World War was only over seven years. So I was surrounded by, you know, the trombone player who was obviously traumatized from the war had been a Marine tanker at Guadalcanal. Oh, wow. um, his teeth were all gone, but he played the most beautiful trombone. So he'd come over and play duets with my mother. Um, there were people with all kinds of public health background. Uh, I, my dad, a very, very advanced handgun shooter had me shooting when I was four. Mm -hmm. uh, I fired an 03 Springfield when I was four years old. Holy Moses. That's a 30, is that 30 caliber? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, you know, Dad took me out of the Kau Desert in, in in Hawaii, and he had he had a beautiful 
original O3 Springfield with the leaf sights. Uh And he was shooting at old targets that the Marines had left behind, thousand yard stuff with this thing. And I said, hey, dad, I got to shoot that. And he said, are you sure you want to do this? (laughs) And I I said, I did. Uh, So he put it across the bonnet of the, it was a World War II Jeep Mm -hmm. and said, you know how to aim, squeeze the trigger, son, and hang on tight. So there was a big bang and I didn't drop it and I wouldn't admit that it hurt. Said I got to do it again, dad. So so I did. Anyway, that's the background. Okay. Uh, Needless to say, I think my first merit badge was probably in marksmanship and then, you know, all of the rest of it, public health, life-saving and all that good stuff. The point is there were lots of people around in a community of about 1,200 maybe at the most. Mm-hmm. Um, to mentor a young guy, I missed out on an awful lot of the social graces. I was a very, I was a strong skier, cross country. You know, I thought probably if the Tenth Mountain Division was still doing that stuff, I probably was going to head there. <laughs> uh, silly boy, that, that's one of those twelve-year-old deals. Uh, but my my best buddy's dad had been a lieutenant in the Tenth Mountain and a ski instructor at Camp Hale in Colorado. So I had good, good skiing instruction. Uh, my other good buddy was in charge of the ranger training program, and we used to abscond with the repelling gear and climb up on Sunnyside Bench, which is the first level up towards the big waterfall, okay. and th- throw a line around a tree and repel off the side of Sunnyside Bench. No carabiners now. None of that sissy stuff. (laughs) Mother wants to know how you ended up with rope burns on the inside of your leg, you know? (laughs) So anyway, it was a, it was a pretty interesting upbringing and mom and dad, a lot of the kids were sent off to boarding school and mom and dad said, no, you're not doing that. You know, Uh, the County high school ain't much, but you'll get out of it what you put in. So I went to Mariposa County high school, which had 200 students in it. And uh, mom and dad were right, even though I spent three hours a day on a bus. Mm -hmm. uh, It it was exactly that. Mostly very young teachers, first first time out of school stuff. Mm -hmm. But I had uh, an amazing history teacher who is also my music teacher who got me started playing music. And he was a Korean War vet, also kind of messed up, but uh, a great man. Um, And from there... Uh, I went to Fresno State. And majoring and, in criminal justice, right? Yeah. I, well, I went there thinking probably I was going to do that and do uh, a natural science. And and uh, I thought that there was going to be a growing requirement for law enforcement people in the National Park Service. Okay. And I liked the NPS environment, um, basically, without really knowing then what I know now about it. Um, I would have been utterly unsuited for it um, mm-hmm. for a lot of reasons. But anyway, I went there and after my first biology lesson, uh, I decided, even though my dad was a zoologist, I decided this ain't for me. I'm really interested about how it all works, but don't ask me to sit there and, and memorize all these pieces and draw pictures, you know? Sure. So I went across the campus and said, I like to try to change my 
majored in criminology and uh, it was a good thing. Uh, it helped me a lot later. Okay. Uh, I had some interesting professors. The, uh, the chair of the department was actually a corrections guy, um, but that soon changed and his number two took over an interesting PhD named Octavio. Uh, it'll come to me. Anyway, he, he'd been a, he was an Italian Boston PD guy, hard as nails. And, and his specialty was polygraph. And he did a lot of research with hypnosis and polygraph. Interesting. And poly, poly, yeah, it was interesting stuff. It was a semester course and it was tough. Um, but I certainly developed some adequate interrogation skills from it. Oh, and sure. uh, the criminalistics course was good. It was taught by an associate professor uh, who was a recently retired Army CIC major, mm. also the firearms instructor. And this guy with a 1911 was pretty un unreal. He shot for the Army pistol team in Europe and I think actually participated in, in the Olympics at one stage. So um, I got a, a really broad sort of spectrum grounding. I did not like did not like Fresno. I didn't like going to school, to be honest with you. I felt sort of, I was poor and I was having to work. Um, I, in Yosemite, I had been apprenticed to the only butcher in, in the place. So I had a skill. And if I worked six days a week for three months, I could save enough to pay for my books and tuition. Mm -hmm. But it, it, was, it was a slog. And frankly, for a kid raised the way I was, uh, being in an institution that size where, where no one really, really cared much about what happened to you tomorrow was uh, not really all that good. Um, further down the track, I'll come down to it. But after my sophomore year, I got the CIC major to write a letter to my draft board saying that I was going to do a research trip for a paper. And I used my savings for the summer plus some overtime with a buddy we got on a Matson liner and went to Tahiti and yeah well, that's a ship research you know okay <laughs> <laughs> so you 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 rode this ship always to Tahiti rode the ship to Tahiti it was a great trip I mean did you have a job the, on there or just no okay. no we, <laughs> my my buddy's best friend's dad worked for Matson and he got us a couple of, of, of tiny little cubicle down in steerage somewhere, uh -huh. but we were never there. I mean, we were 19, 20 years old, I think. Mm -hmm. And the, and the only, you know, the only young studs on the ship. So it, it wasn't, it wasn't a hard trip. Uh, we, we had a nice time. We didn't have to buy any beer. Everyone bought beer for us. <laughs> and, uh, of course we were at sea, so it was legal. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we didn't last long in Tahiti, you know, I didn't speak French and the foreign legion were there in a big way. And that was a great way to get your ass kicked, really, you know, being an American <laughs> in a bar with a bunch of legionnaires. Um, okay. So uh, we, we went onward to Fiji and uh, Fiji, I uh, met, just went into the police station and met some of the senior colonial police guys, one of whom was a, a Brit who'd been in the colonial police probably 15 years at that point, mm -hmm. old Kenya hand, as I recall. Mm -hmm. 
and he 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 gave me all the information I needed and and introduced me to a lot of people, including the police band and the riot squad and all the rest. And he he said, I'm going to sign you up to join um, our international organization, which looks after policemen when they travel. Mm-hmm. You're not in the in the in the force yet, but people will look after you. Mm-hmm. And he did that. And uh, so we were looked after in New Zealand. We hitched the length of New Zealand and had a pretty fabulous time, and then went to Australia. And in Australia. Uh, in Melbourne, the Victoria police took really good care of me. And one of the guys in the traffic branch had just fallen off his BMW and he was in a cast. And he said, by the way, a couple of my really close friends have just gone to New Guinea, uh, seconded as uh, sub-inspectors of police. Why don't you go to New Guinea? I mean, uh, New Guinea is a place where you can really learn about grassroots policing and i said well i don't have much money and they they said well you you know get there you'll be okay so i wrote to my dad and said dad could you send me a hundred bucks i know it's an awful lot of money but could you and i hopped on a plane for new guinea with 40 bucks in my pocket Mm -hmm. hoping that dad's snail mail would find me somewhere Mm -hmm. it eventually did in fiji about three weeks later at the uh, consulate there. But anyway, uh, that began my education in New Guinea. Uh, Those guys took great care of me. They passed me from one station to the next, always took me home, fed me, plied me with beer, showed me everything I needed to know. Um, (laughs) Was this Port Moresby? Started in Port Moresby, um, went to Ley with a special branch contingency that was on its way to Rabaul, which is New Britain, mm-hmm. where they were working a major fraud case, but not telling anyone because everyone knows everyone in PNG. Mm-hmm. And I met my future business partner in later days, Sub Inspector Leo Newport in Rabaul. Mm-hmm. Um, from there, I was really broke, um, and I flew to Guadalcanal, and Spent a couple of days there and arrived in Fiji, I think, with five dollars. Wow. And went to the consulate and my hundred bucks was there. So oh, thank God. <laughs> yeah, thank God. Anyway, that was that was my interlude. I got back to Fresno State in time for the spring semester and and aced it, you know. I, yeah, sure. 3.5, no sweat. I had my stuff in one bag. Uh didn't let the small stuff get in my way anymore. And Mm-hmm. Uh, Plus, you had a great story to tell the professors about uh, did. You know, the New Guinea police, and and I'm sure yeah. that they were fascinated with the story of how you you know kind of worked your way into their uh, organization. Uh, to yeah, the they were. Uh, there were. I think there was secretly quite a bit of envy. Um, the CIC guy was a, a very cool dude, as you can imagine, um, and he just smiled and he said, "I'll expect your paper next week." And he gave me a B plus for it. That's that's, that's fine. <laughs> it had good pictures in it, you know. <laughs> that's a great story. So uh, anyway, uh, when I was a senior, Dad was finally transferred mm-hmm. from Yosemite to D.C. Um, to work in the Interior Building in downtown Washington. Mm-hmm. And Mom and Dad bought their first house in Springfield, Virginia, 
And I finished out that last year, uh, you know, pretty much on my own. Uh, I took the exam, both the written and the verbal uh, for the CHP and placed 12th in the state. And I thought, you know, that's a good place to start a law enforcement career. My bunkie, who's still my best buddy and lives in Chico, exactly 10 years older than me, uh, used to take me out on the road. He was posted into uh, Madeira. So, you know, I knew what the job was and, and I enjoyed being outdoors. I knew I was never going to go to the park service. So this seemed like a starting place. And um, it sort of looked like I was going to go in maybe October, November of 67. Um, Mom and dad said, you know, you should really come back to Washington. We'd like to see you. And, you know, you should look around a little bit while you're here. And I said, sure, I'll come. And this will really amuse you. Um, I've been a competitive shooter at, at Fresno State. So I had an accurized K-38 uh, Smith & Wesson, and I had a Hammerley Walther Olympic Rapid Fire 22, which my professor sold me, um, and uh, Chief Special and uh, 357. Yeah. And I put them all in an AWOL bag with a T-shirt on top, climbed on the plane, and flew to Washington. And <laughs> yeah, good, huh? Yeah, exactly. You don't see that today. <laughs> no, I think I probably had all my ammo in the suitcase, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Anyway, I got there and uh, happy family reunion. Uh, my two of my siblings were still there. My sister uh, had landed a job with the agency in the training branch. Um, my little brother was still an outlaw high school kid. Um, and there was room and a bunk for me there. So uh, dad said, son, you, you know, you really should look around and you probably better get a job pretty soon too. Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah, absolutely, dad. I had all my knives with me. Uh, so he, he said, you know, the giant food store in Springfield is probably a good place to start. So I walked in and the manager said, sure, come in on Monday, bring your knives. And, uh, you know, I signed up in the union and the pay was about four times better than what I'd ever had. Mm -hmm. And then dad said, I want you to meet my old friend at the Secret Service. And he'll give you some ideas about what's going on out there. And the CHP hadn't called me yet. So I said, sure, I'll go. And I went down. I'm sorry, I can't remember his name anymore. But he was a really salt of the earth kind of guy. I think dad might have met him when JFK came to Yosemite. Okay. Um, and he said, uh, what do you like to do? And I said, well, uh, I'm pretty much open to suggestion, but I like being outdoors and I'd really like to work overseas. Mm -hmm. And he said, uh, I hear that State Department are hiring. And I said, oh yeah, I'd really be interested in talking to State. And he said, uh, Secret Service is always an option. I said, yeah, you know, a prestigious job. Uh, I could do that. He says, but we only, we hire at GS5 and you spend a year as a flunky GS5. And I said, well, yeah, I won't say no. But he said, however, the Navy is hiring at seven and the Navy's all over the world. 
I said, the Navy? He said, yeah, the Office of Naval Intelligence. Uh, I said, what do they do? And I said, uh, he said, well, you know, they, they have a law enforcement role. I can't tell you too much about it, but you know, they're intelligence, you know. Um, they'd probably be interested in talking to you. And I said, sure, I'll go. So I interviewed with both of them and the, the uh, State Department looked better, mostly because of the career path at that time. And, and they started a BI on me right away. Mm-hmm. And then I went down and met Cecil Boggs in room 200 at the Washington Navy Yard. Mm-hmm. And Boggs was a World War II a dive bomber pilot who bombed Rabaul during the war, salt of the earth kind of guy, um, quite distinctive from what I derogatorily refer to as the doorbell pushers who ran all the BIs. And Cecil knew my language. He knew what I was doing and something about what I'd said. He talked to me for a long time. And he said, um, I think you probably fit here. Uh, would you like to be considered? And I said, certainly, sir, I would. And same story. They started a domestic BI on me and it went on forever. And the reason for that was my trip to the South Pacific. They'd farmed out all those leads to the State Department. So, you know, some poor flunky in state went out wandering around Suva, Fiji to see what I'd done at night. Um, <laughs> you know, what can I say? I'm a clean skin. Uh, anyway. <laughs> I was getting pretty worried, you know, uh, draft board were making ugly sounds mm-hmm. and I wasn't so worried about that. I just, uh, you know, I wanted some options. So I went and talked to the army and the army said, you bet, uh, we'll have you as uh, officer candidate at, at uh, the MP OCS in at Fort Gordon. And he said, moreover, we'll give you six months to settle your affairs before you have to report. And I said, yep count me in I'll do that mm-hmm. and about two months later I got a call from Cease Boggs who said your BI is done you're good to go come see me at room 200 on Monday morning mm-hmm. so I went out to the department store and bought myself the best suit I could afford and, and by that time I had a 61 Porsche nice it didn't cost me much because it had been wrecked, but it was okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I made my way to room 200 and, and uh, went through all the formalities. They sent me over to see the nurse for a peremptory physical. And the form said I was a GS7 research analyst. <laughs> and she looked at me and she said, oh, Good morning, special agent. <laughs> <laughs> she already knew the story, the research. Oh, yeah, she, she'd heard it all before. So. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it, was, it, was, it was pretty different. My first morning, um, I didn't see anyone carrying any guns. I didn't see any guns at all. Mm-hmm. And while I was there, one of the agents, uh, I think he was maybe an ex-Vietnam guy came into Cease's office and Cease said to him, I've got a an 8C that's belligerent out at the Marine Corps headquarters. Uh, it's your call, you know. And 
Cease went over and opened his security container and there are stacks of Model 19 Smith & Wesson combat magnums in their boxes. And he looked down and saw the one of the agent's name on it and he handed it to him and he said, here's your weapon. And I thought, woo, you know, no <laughs> weapons, huh? Well, it turns out I won't mention names, but the boss, the big boss across the hall, hated weapons. Oh, he boy. did not want to see a weapon anywhere in that place. No handcuffs, no weapons, none of that police stuff. Uh -huh. um, and in those days, Washington was not a real cheery place. You know, work in Southeast Washington um, had, its, had its moments. Mm -hmm. um, it changed uh, later, later on they sent me to upstairs to a squad where more of the criminal work was done. And I was paired up with two pretty interesting dudes. Thomas Victor Cash later became the sack of DEA Miami. And Tom was a real smart guy. He spoke German and was a little bit of a politician, was finishing his master's degree at Pentagon at night, had a wife and three kids and was poor. But, you know, he was obviously a hard charger. Mm -hmm. I melded much better with a guy named John William Uhas, who had been a LAPD detective for 12 years. Okay. And Uhas was not putting up with any of this no uh, firearm stuff. Uh, <laughs> he had a very nice old chief special with his own grips on it, and he wore it proudly and the boss just turned away when he saw him. But um, anyway, that was sort of how I was introduced to all this stuff. I reported aboard in March and I went to basic in May. And you're working out of building 200 there at the Washington Navy Yard? That's it. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that was the office until just a few years ago. That was the Washington field office. So it was. There, uh, I, think. I, I, look, I had occasion to visit there about five years ago. Mm -hmm. And frankly, I didn't recognize it. Um, mm -hmm. When I was there, I wish I could be the old brain here. You know, the, it was very much like an, a World War II Navy office. It had fans on the walls. It was an open bay packed full of secretaries who were running NCIC checks, I think. It was all paper. Mm -hmm. uh, and there was a sort of a squad bay over on one side that didn't go up to the ceiling. There was just sort of a barricade there. Mm -hmm. I don't re even remember doing an interrogation in that place. And oh. I don't know, I don't know where we would have done it. Um, <laughs> really. Uh, Out in the back alley. <laughs> I guess. Well, there's a lot of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Behind the gun turret. Yeah, yeah. there's <laughs> there a little of that. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, I, I, I worked BIs at NSG in Nebraska Avenue with uh, a retired OSI major who didn't want to do anything but BIs, but he did them very well. Mm -hmm. So I learned that. And then I started dabbling in criminal stuff. And we did have some interesting stuff with you has some cash. Um, there were a couple of espionage cases that were very active. There was, yeah, there was a former attache who'd been at Sinkus Navure and around the places who had one of those Profumo type relations going on the side. Mm -hmm. um, and he was in a very sensitive post at the Pentagon. And we, you know, after hours living on McDonald's, surveilling him as he drove home 
to Norfolk where his wife and family were every weekend. And, and similar category eight people on uh, nuclear submarines who are hanging out in public parks in Washington, DC. Um, there were cases where we had an academy graduate A4 pilot drive into the ground and we found his ring finger and identified him, that sort of stuff. That wow. was perfect. Yeah, it was interesting. Yeah. Um, and then in May, they sent me to basic school. So you'd been there a few months, which was typical of any agent hired in those days, right? Well, I, I guess I was kind of lucky. Uh, yeah, just a couple of months and they found a way to get me in. And I probably the boss wanted me out of his hair. I don't know. But <laughs> uh, I went and, and, and it was good. Um, my, my uh, sponsor was a guy named Jack Renwick, who retired. SES level secret service some time ago. Um, and uh, Jack Donnelly was sort of the, the big man who came in and told us, explained to us why really BIs were the sharp stick, you know, yeah. in our fight against the Russian oppressors. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, he became and, the director of DIS, right? It was, it, I think he did. Yeah, he did. He, he was a good guy. Yeah. Um, I knew his son, Mike Donnelly. Of course. Mike's yeah. a great guy. Yeah. Um, and, and he kept it interesting. I mean, he brought in stuff like the, the, the ceremonial eagle that the Russians gave the American embassy that had all the, the, the gear built into the back of it for picking up the conference room stuff. Uh -huh. He said, oh, yeah, this this is what you're, what you're here to do. Anyway, Jack Renwick fortunately told me a little bit about it, what it was really like out there in the field. Mm -hmm. And about halfway through the course, I said, I'm going to volunteer to go to Vietnam. Mm -hmm. um, and it wasn't that I really, you know, wanted to go to war. I mean, I thought it was my job to, especially as that's what my dad had done and all of my peers' dad had done. But, and you were about 24 uh, about this time, right? 24 years 20, old? 23. 23 years old, okay. 23, yep. And, yeah. and it seemed like a good idea. Um, they said, okay, it's, it's a 12-month tour. And um, you can pick whether you want to go to Saigon or Da Nang. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to go to Da Nang because, mostly because I, I wanted to work with the Marines. And... Uh, I don't know why that insane thought came into my brain, but that, that seemed like a good idea. Mm -hmm. And they, they said, and your choice of duty station afterwards. And I said, oh, that's definitely for me. I think Hong Kong or Sydney as a one-man agent post would be pretty good. Mm -hmm. Delusions of grandeur again. <laughs> and, 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 uh, and you get to take the promotional exam after 12 months. And I said, hey, yeah, I can do that. You know, being a journeyman agent at 24 sounded pretty damn good to me. And so anyway, I said, I'm in. Um, and they're very nice. Uh, the director, who's an old Navy captain named E.G. Reifenberg, called me into his office and stood up and patted me on the back and said, son, I know you'll do well. We're proud of you. You know, I yeah. thought, I like this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the smart civilian leadership were more like, well, 
you'll be sorry. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. So anyway, back to Washington field office for about a week after I finished. And uh, they said, uh, you got to learn Marine. So we're sending you to Quantico. And Quantico is great. I worked for Sig Howerton. One of the agents there, Dave Roberts, uh, was a Marine. Um, and he'd been in Da Nang with Carl Merritt and the original contingency there. Knew all the ropes in and out. Mind you, these guys are all older than me. And, and my working partner was a character, and I mean character, a retired BMC named Gardner E. Wallace. Okay. And Wallace smoked cigars um, incessantly. And uh, he was a BMC. Um, so what was a BMC for the audience? I'm sorry, uh, Bosun's mate chief. Okay, very good. Yeah. Okay. And so he's a I tough guy. BMC, that's, Bosun mates are salt yes. of the Navy. So Yeah, they, they are. Yeah. This, this guy was, had a, a pretty strange background. Um, as I recall, he was a trained R4D pilot, which, you know, is a wow. D-47 to you and me. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did a, a, a lot of weird stuff for the old ONI in the Caribbean uh, during the war and afterwards. Interesting. Early days. Of, but anyway, Gardner Wally. Wally was a character. And Wally, Wally was a chief. Um, he, he didn't have to straighten me out very much. Mostly he just said, you know, uh, here's how I do it. Mm-hmm. You can if you want to uh, type of thing. So anyway, uh, the cases at Quantico were pretty interesting. The OCS was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the basic school was there. Communication school, comm school was there. And that was a big customer for the BI side because you had to have a secret to start the course. Right. And Marine Corps Command and Staff College was there too. And that was, those were very interesting cases. These are mostly junior field grade officers on mm-hmm. the way, mm-hmm. doing lots of strange stuff. You know, I saw things on the desks of what are we going to do if we invade X and how are we going to do it? Um, <laughs> yeah. Stuff I shouldn't be seeing, you know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was Quantico, yeah. and um, exactly twelve months after I hired aboard, my orders came for Vietnam. Wow, they didn't waste any time at all. <laughs> and uh, my mom bravely drove me to Dulles and said, "Be careful, son," and away I went. Wow. I flew to uh, Travis, flew to San Francisco. (laughs) (laughs) I had a couple of nice days in San Francisco. I told them I wanted to take my leave on the the way and no one took the trouble to figure out what it really was. So I said, um, I'll be a few days late, you know. (laughs) 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 And my girlfriend gave me a ride to Travis and I got on the plane and Flew to Honolulu and then to uh, Clark Air Force Base. Mm-hmm. So since I had some leave up my sleeve, I decided I'd take a few days off 
and go down to New Guinea and see all my buddies at, at the police training college in Port Moresby. So I went to the I went to the Navy liaison desk there, and there was an E6 there, and he noticed creds in my pocket and wearing civvies and said, how can I help you, sir? And I said, I'm trying to get to Manila. And he said, well, you know, uh, there's a, an 06 who's got his own helo who's gonna be flying down there in about an hour and a half. And I'm sure he wouldn't mind if you boarded. And I said, thanks, that, that'd be great. So I did that. And at Sangley, one of my sponsors from basic school is the senior resident agent. And um, he took me home and fed me and put me on the last ferry to the American embassy across on the other side of Manila Bay, where I caught a taxi to the airport and got on the Qantas flight to Port Moresby. From, and after getting outrageously drunk with an old Australian coast watcher, <laughs> who became a really interesting good friend, told me lots of stories that I eventually used. Um, but anyway, so after a, a, a fairly outrageous week in Port Moresby, I flew back to Manila and got on the plane to Saigon. And since we were civilians, all, all agents had to go through Saigon. That's where the main office, the CO was, but Moreover, we had to get our little red passport stamped by the Vietnamese. Okay. So I arrived one early afternoon in Saigon. No one knew I was coming, of course. They had no way of knowing. And uh, so I arrived and my initial impressions of Saigon, even though um, I was not new to the developed world were uh, pretty outrageous, I mean, Tonsonet Air Base was very, very busy. Uh, there were A1s loaded with ordnance booming past us, one or two civilian aircraft. We made a tactical approach to the airfield. The moment they opened the door, Vietnam came rushing into the airplane. <laughs> a blast of heat, to... right? A blast of heat. And yeah, and, and humidity, but but humanity would be the overpowering thing. Oh, wow. You know, no refrigeration. So you had a sort of a mix of uh, yesterday's produce. Um, the kids uh, typically uh, defecated over the curb because oh. there was not a, a sewage system that worked, especially that far out from the old city. Oh, wow. So it was it was kind of interesting, and I thought, I uh, wonder if you've bitten off more than you could chew, son. Uh, <laughs> and I walked into the airport, into the old civilian airport uh, that still had wonderful posters from Air France on the wall. Go see Angkor Wat. Go to Dalat, the delight of the highlands. All these pretty Vietnamese women and their owls eyes. And they were old and gray and fly blown. And I thought it's not like that, I'm sure today. And it wasn't. Mm. So I went to find the closest air policeman I could find and said, um, would you ring the duty OSI agent for me? Mm -hmm. 
And he said, why? And I showed him my creds and he said, sure. And I did. And the OSI agent said, uh, call Tiger 3967. Just pick up the phone and tell the Vietnamese operator that's what you want. And I did. And uh, a, a Vietnamese answered on the other end, which was typical. And I said who I was. And they put me through to the assistant SRA, who is Art Newman. Mm-hmm. And Art said, oh, hang tight. I'll be out to get you. And about an hour and a half later, Art turned up in a very severely battered 65 Falcon with dents in it everywhere, filthy, uh, radio antenna broken, you know, <laughs> yeah, the seats were broken, everything was broken. <laughs> A typical and, uh, NIS car. <laughs> NIS car, yeah, I, well, I, I was driving a 64 Valiant at, at, at Quantico that v- barely ran. Right. Uh, so I wasn't too surprised, but. So you switched out your Porsche for the Valiant? There we are. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Yeah, it was, it was a harsh transit. Anyway, on the way back uh, to the office, I saw what Saigon was like and, and, uh, Sadly, Saigon by 69 was just so overwhelmed by refugees. Mm. Everyone trying to make a living. Um, there was a lot of Arvin, uh, Viet- Vietnam Army presence. Um, they drove six by sixes at hellish rates. And the only thing they knew how to do was use a horn. It was dangerous driving. Make no okay. mistake about it at all. Mm. And... Uh, I got to the office and uh, the CO, uh, a junior lieutenant commander, Bill Armbruster, 1630, mm-hmm. really nice guy, first thing he did, or asked me into the office, how are you, and welcome aboard, and uh, they treated me really well, I'd have to say. The, the SRA then was Royce Logan. Royce had been a, a Texas lawman. There were a few of those around, mm-hmm. and they're different, as you know. Um, he was a real down home straight shooter smart guy retired senior fbi and married an fbi agent later in his life too uh so i started feeling at home right away and um they found a a bunk for me in room four at at the five oceans boq which was hundred meters away on the other side of the railway tracks. We used to walk there, which wasn't always that smart, but we did. Mm-hmm. And the, the newbie bunk in, the, in room four was situated behind the bar. Now there was, you know, there was some serious after hours recreation in room four because there really wasn't a lot else you could or should be doing. Mm-hmm. We were allowed out in Saigon at night and well, later on, I, I often did, and actually in my last year, when I didn't even have a mess hall to go to, I used to eat on the street from vendors I knew. Uh, beautiful bread, fresh boiled mussels, uh, Vietnamese fare. Definitely, I was going oriental by year three, I'm sure. But anyhow, uh, my the only thing that I got from NIS was my weapon, which they had mailed special delivery through the FPO. So I had my weapon with me. 
and, and my ONI 631B, which was the manual, the, I think it was later called the Blue Max. Those two things were there in a box for me. Everything else was up to me. So the, uh, the so you had this uh, the manual that uh, was that your investigative manual as far yep. as okay it's a three ring binder okay and uh, to which corrections were regularly sent sure and the routine was you cut out the corrections <laughs> and stapled them onto the pages okay <laughs> yes yes <laughs> well my sixty three one b was right up to speed because uh, I knew. I was getting ready for that exam, and um, I didn't want to be left flat-footed and make and screw something up, because I'd told, been told there's a minimum of supervision there, and SRAs don't go to the field. So figure, you know, figure it out. That was what I had. I I think I had. I think I had uh, two pairs of shoes and some chinos, and three or four short sleeve white shirts okay which is sort of the that was the uniform of the day in saigon we were we were issued id which identified us to the vietnamese as members of the military security service which were the heavies um, that could get you out of a tight spot we were issued military id which identified us as civil engineers from oicc yeah. uh does that ring a bell? Office of Civilian Construction, <laughs> that being the senior CB. Interesting. Um, okay. Uh, they took away the top half of our credentials, which said Naval Intelligence, and issued us with another one, which said just Naval Investigative Service. Uh, and after three days in Saigon, they put me on a C-130 to Da Nang. Mm. Of course, true to form, the yeoman who was supposed to phone Da Nang and tell him I was coming forgot. And I arrived in the evening uh, after riding with a bunch of, of grunts, most of them coming back from r and mm -hmm. who were not very happy um, and it was packed. And my first time on a C-130. So I got off the plane in, in Da Nang and Da Nang was, you know, was pretty much an active war zone. We got rocketed most nights and there was a lot of illumination up in the air and uh, outgoing artillery and uh, nobody there. Doug, can I stop you for a second? Because I want to ask a question about yeah. your, your arrival there in Saigon and yeah. go to the office. When you get your credentials and all your identification, was it explained to you um, that you know the risk of capture? Anything about the risk of capture? What would happen to you if you were captured? You never got that from our leadership. Mm -hmm. Interesting. <laughs> you know, the chief would tell you, mm -hmm. and we had good chiefs. I think they call them ninety-five, ninety-twos. The Not Intel sure. Yeoman. <clears throat> yeah, very savvy guys. Yeah. Yeah, you know. A sly look and says, uh, "Sir, you know, have you thought about how you're going to eat those?" Uh, <laughs> yeah, and and the bad thing was you couldn't do your job without credentials. Sure, absolutely could not do them. Mm -hmm. So you know you're constantly thinking about what you're going to do with those damn credentials and your plastic navy briefcase with leads in it. 
that you have to show to the CO of 3.5 or wherever you're going um, as a protocol. No, it's not good. It's not good at all. Yeah. Um, So you had to come up, you basically had to come up with a cover story, possibly, potentially, and and an an idea of what you were going to do with your, all your identification. And what, you know, I was thinking about which orifice it had fit in least painfully. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. Uh, Yeah. uh, Hoping maybe there was some sort of evidence that I was about to be captured. Mm -hmm. Uh, Decide what my odds were of shooting my way out or running away. Um, Mm -hmm. The times that I was shot at where it was really close, I was always in a Jeep. Mm -hmm. And the routine with a vehicle is uh, unless you can't, you drive as fast as you can and get the hell out of there. Mm -hmm. Um, So I never had it, uh, but I worried a lot about it. And and in Northern I-Corps in Indian country, I always had my credentials, Mm -hmm. always. I used to drive, I used to drive from Northern I-Corps to Da Nang in a Jeep, Um, seldom by myself, but sometimes I had to. and without getting off the track, there were times during the monsoon. Oh, I, by the way, I got myself a heavy equipment license, operate, uh, operator's license through the CBs, the senior EO. Mm-hmm. So I was licensed to drive a 25-ton tractor trailer wow. and, and a five-ton military dump truck. Any way you can get transportation and get that ticket to go somewhere you you have that license now exactly and 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 the and the idea was uh, one time i had a call from a cb battalion commander down north of way which a long way during a typhoon Mm -hmm. and much of the road was washed out and i said went to the co of the cb battalion and said uh you know captain i want to borrow one of your five tonners Mm -hmm. and he wasn't too happy about it but he, he did and the road was so bad, it was washed out so badly, I had to turn around. Wow. Uh, turn, turning around on a one-lane road with a five-ton truck in the monsoon is kind of a challenge. Oh, sure. You know, it's, it's uh, this is a six-by-six five-tonner. It's mm-hmm. a, a piece of machinery. No automatic transmissions in those days, I'll tell you what. Two-speed yeah. two transfer case on a five, five speeds forward and no synchro mesh. Oh, my goodness. So... Anyway, cover story, no. No cover story. It was just don't get captured, buddy. Right. And 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 you brought up kind of a sensitive subject because in the early days, there was a hell of a lot of resistance from headquarters types to agents wearing anything other than civilian clothing anywhere. Mm. And uh couple of guys tom brannan our infamous polygraph guy was one of the first ones who just did it anyway and mm-hmm. carl Merritt was a a marine still mm-hmm. is yep. um they just did it sure. and that made things a little bit better mm-hmm. at least we didn't stand out like you know a dog's cojones right. like you did in cities so uh yeah, risky business. Sure. 
So you go to Da Nang, your first trip to Da Nang. First trip to Da Nang. I get off the plane, it's nighttime. Not a good time. Nobody in the, nobody in the depot because of course there's curfew. And I went in and there was a, another nice Air Force Air Policeman there and I did the same thing again. Can you ring the OSI duty agent? And OSI in those days was full of E8s and E9s, incredibly talented guys who were mostly FCI people. A couple of the ones I spoke to, one of them spoke Thai and Japanese like a native. Um, these are the kind of guys that a young guy who was perceived as being a junior officer anyway, wanted to get to know and pay real careful attention to. Sure. And this guy did that. He got me hooked up, connected with our billet. Um, da Nang was a don't go outside the wire situation where you're expected to be in by nightfall and they closed the gate and the armed guard was there. Mm -hmm. So he said, uh, call Motley 101. And I did. And the SRA, Don McCoy answered and he said, oh, we wondered where you were. Uh, I said, well, I'm at the air base. And he said, well, uh, we'll be out to get you. And about 45 minutes later, Don McCoy turns up with Tom Stallings in a dual cab three-quarter ton Dodge, gray Dodge with U.S. Navy all over it. And I thought, why would you want to be driving that now? Uh, roadblocks to go through and all the rest. But, but, you know, that's what we had. That's what the Navy thought we should be doing. And we didn't get shot at on the way back. Um, in those days, um, we had our own billet at 23 Docklop Street in Da Nang. It was a former small boutique French hotel, I would say. Pretty much bare bones, three decks. Our infamous boozer called the Blue Elephant was on the bottom floor and, and room one which is where I went. Uh, they said, you know, you're just new here. You have to figure out where to crawl after, you know. And my bunkie was the, was the yeoman chief, Ben Savage. Really good guy. Very decent chief type um, who's kindly to a, a real boot, you know. Still 23 years old. I had my 24th about four weeks after I got in country. So um, I settled in, uh, learned the routine. Typically, we got up in the morning um, at different times. The first guy up started the water pump from the well, which pumped unpotable water up to the top, where there was a, a tank where insects and reptiles died frequently. And mm. <laughs> and that's that's what we showered in anyway we had showers okay cold water, cold water showers uh -huh. um a wall locker and a vietnamese bed with a mosquito net that was it wow. and and we had hooch mates who came in and washed our clothes i mean it was it was very basic um but you know when you 
all you had to do is go to the field once and realize how lucky you were. Yeah. But anyway, in the morning, they pumped the water up there and the guys started getting up. Um, we brought our, all our vehicles over and parked them just outside the wall in the wire. And the early birds, a couple of them would team up and they'd drive down the street to the, to the, uh, to the officer's mess mm. called the Stone Elephant. And, and it was it was a nice officer's mess, you know, the, the Navy. When the Navy got there, they had plenty of money and they didn't didn't skimp and we ate well. Um, Vietnamese service, uh, lots of hot coffee. It was also where we went at night when we had a band arrive or something like that or just to get out of the place. So that was about... 300 meters down Docklop Street. It was close. Mm. Afterwards, uh, straight to the office, which was uh, about the same distance back and two streets over, close to the American consulate. That office had also been in the first days, back in the Carl Merritt days, had been where they slept as well. Mm. There was a garage and two bedrooms ahead and a little sort of a garden shack out the back that our JG, who was supposed to be an FCI guy, but wasn't hung out with the interpreter. So when I got there, there were three or four agents in each office. In other words, Navy desks packed in side by side, you had your own typewriter um, and an office chair, uh, no air conditioning, ceiling fans though. And uh, the SRA had his own office and a security container and a Motorola radio. So we had radios in most of the vehicles. Of course, they were useless once you got out of the city. but. You know, it made you feel good. <laughs> oh, that's a familiar sound. Yeah. Um, and I, they didn't, uh, the SRA, McCoy, nice man, uh, been the SRA at Cleveland. He was a kind of a gentle soul. He, he was a Quaker. Um, he carried a weapon and he knew how to use it. Um, he had a wife and three or four kids at home. I worried about him a lot, you know. Uh, I don't know for sure, but I think the reason he took the job was because it would allow him to go back home and not move his kids, you know. That was kind of the unfortunate side. McCoy was kindly. Um, the JG, Michael Stephen Quinn, was an outlaw. Um, criminology major from Florida State who uh, flunked out of Pensacola. He's okay. going to be a, going to be an F4 pilot. Uh -huh. uh, Quinn, Quinn, Quinn was sort of attuned to real basic law enforcement, but he didn't really communicate real well with the CO. And the COs were always 1630s. And he had some basic FCI tasks that he didn't do very well. He's not a 
no real motivated sort of guy. Quinn was sort of an, an accident waiting to happen. We, we used to drink a few beers when I was at basic school together with him. And uh, we, we got into trouble at the Stone Elephant together a few times. And <laughs> the, the, bartender, the bartender was a friend. He was an E6. Mm-hmm. And he always made sure we got home safely sometimes on the hood of the jeep but we got home <laughs> and and mccoy tolerated this stuff because basically the office was a bunch of outlaws um, you know guys who volunteered for vietnam were all a little bit different <laughs> uh, most of them most of them really good solid guys i mean lance arnold mm-hmm. uh came aboard just a little bit before me um Vern Oakham, who I worked my first homicide with, had been there most better part of a year. Uh, Eddie Wilson Hemphill, um, I think he retired as the sack at Bethesda. Uh, Joseph Frank Washko, that uh, had had been a Marine captain, and he sadly suicided. Uh, halfway through his tour mm. should never have gone back to Vietnam um, why they sent him I'll never know uh, Leo Arturo Gonzalez arrived a little bit after me Leo was a, a real hard ass marine infantry guy um, he'd been the security officer at Chulai where the marine established their first instant uh, carrier operation, ground-based A4s with uh, steam catapults. Right. Gonzalez was uh, a great guy. He's the guy you wanted to go to the field with. So basically, oh, and we had a couple of other real characters. Uh, Walt Folk, who'd been a Huntington Beach PD motor officer, was a, a hard case, probably 35-year-old agent. And he and um, Fred Grimm, who you probably heard of, was at MCAS, sorry, at MCRD for years. Fred Grimm transferred in yeah, from ADAC. Mm-hmm. They were both older guys. Um, th- these two guys uh, were recreational, uh, re- recreational drinkers. Uh, we got ration cards and booze was ridiculously cheap. Mm-hmm. I mean, you get a bottle of Hiram Walkers for two bucks, you know. <laughs> but they were the inventors. You remember as a, as a kid, I'm sure you probably saw driving through California, the big orange, you know, it was one of those come to stop and get a cool drink. Sure. Well, the big orange with these two guys was a 16 ounce pint glass with Hiram Walkers and a little bit of water. <laughs> oh my goodness so we used to have the evening fumbling fumbling freddie and wobbling walter show <laughs> uh, so anyway that's that was the sort of mix that i came to um and i should mention most certainly uh larry coleman larry coleman was uh had been an ohio state trooper and larry had a wife and three kids back in the States. 
he was our firearms instructor. Uh, Larry still plays bagpipes. Oh, wow. uh, yeah, he's in Honolulu. He's retired about three day, three times. He's in, the, in his 90s now. Larry took me to the field for the first time. He scrounged up some utilities for me that someone had left behind. And we went out to Hill 55, which was the northern edge of the Arizona Territory. And if you've ever read any of James Webb, uh, former SecNav. Yeah, I read his, uh, his book, Fields of Fire. There you are. Yeah. Well, Field 55 was the, fire, the northernmost fire base that looked after the Arizona. Okay. 65 and 37 were on a chain sort of farther down. There had been a, a fragging, which turned out to be a suicide at 55. Mm -hmm. And we had to run some leads out there, a couple of inter interviews, as I recall. Um, was, I this carried, gun, was this the gunnery sergeant who, uh, um, who blew himself up? Yeah. Wow. Staff, I think, but yeah, maybe gunner. Okay. a cook. He was a cook. Um, yeah. I don't know what was going on, but he definitely had delusions and he killed himself with an M26 frag on his abdomen. And he did it that way because uh, he wanted to be, he wanted an open coffin funeral and he wanted to be buried in his dress blues. Wow. Yeah. Strange stuff. Larry was, you know, a, a very, very patient sort of an investigator. And he, there was a, a cut in the fly wire next to the cot where the deceased had been. Mm -hmm. And Larry looked at it and looked at it and looked at it. And he said, you know, I think this was cut from the inside, not the outside. Interesting. I, yeah, very much so. And we, all of our forensic stuff was done at Camp Fuji in Japan, the Army CID did it for us, mm -hmm. including narcotics. Um, and Larry took the piece of fly wire and sent it there, labeled front and back. And the, the, the lab confirmed that. And agents in the States did some follow-up and got some of his correspondence and put all the pieces together. And yeah, that was that story. That's a good it, word. Yeah. It, well, that was, that was Larry. He was a, a hell of a fine agent uh, and a very decent man too. He, uh, he was sort of one of the, the rudder, if you like, in the office, <laughs> the stabilizing element. Um, the drive out there was kind of an eye opener. Uh, there were dead VC lined up alongside the road that the local uh, RFPF element had killed in an ambush. Uh, there was plenty of artillery fire outgoing, uh, amphibious tractors on the road, M48 tanks, mm -hmm. uh, lots of Vietnamese civilians. And, you know, one of the really sad parts about that whole thing, the number of civilians that we killed on the roads was just ridiculous and always just awful. And uh, you know, I'd seen death, but that that kind of got to me. That kind of death, stupid death. And Vietnam was characterized by stupid death. Uh, an awful lot of our own people, each other, and uh, 
stupidity. But anyway, I, I, I digress. That was my first trip to the bush. And um, I guess what I should say is there started being more of it later. Uh, the late Frank Orantia. Uh, Frank had been a sheriff, San Bernardino, Riverside. I guess that'd be, wouldn't it? Yeah. Solid guy, been a tanker in the Korean War. Um, brought up under canvas as a, a new American, somewhere around Riverside. And uh, I guess Frank probably taught me more about ethics than anybody I ever ran up against. 10 years my senior, like a big brother to me. Frank, wife and three kids, you know, same story. Frank was one of the guys who did the roaming agent thing. And uh, in those days, Roaming agents just packed some socks and underwear and put on their utilities and then got their briefcase and headed for the closest place where they were needed. Mm -hmm. And and I started learning how to do that from Frank and also a guy named Dave Hall. Um, it was Frank's bunkie <laughs> at the time. Dave Hall, uh, another one of the Vietnam guys who prostate cancer killed. Mm. Frank died of cancer. Same story, good old age in Orange. Um, I started doing more of it and kind of decided maybe this was something I was better at than working theft cases at the dock, you know. Um, mm -hmm. It was most of them were leads, but that was okay because it taught me an awful lot about who was where and what was going on in the country and how to survive mm -hmm. and how to get the job done. So I just sort of gradually gravitated that way. Uh, so I arrived in March and in July, um, the SRA said, asked me if I would take over the satellite unit at Quang Tree Combat Base. Mm -hmm. That had been established by John Schlickman, who was a former CID warrant officer polygraph guy who was Mayport, maybe Florida, somewhere down that way. Okay. Uh, consummate professional. Uh, did not think or act at all like a leader or an officer, <laughs> which, which is a little bit cumbersome, you know. Um, but he was a really good guy, six foot six, former basketball player, uh, always got the job done. I think they realized it was time for John to, to come home. He'd only been there, I don't know, four to six weeks, I think. Mm -hmm. And the situation at Quang Tree was interesting. Um, I'm not privy to what the leadership was thinking, but I think that there was a lot of pressure in Saigon to have more of a presence with the third Marine division, which was the outfit that was deployed on the DMZ. Mm -hmm. um, the third Marine division was stretched all the way from the Laotian border and Quezon to Quaviette, where the river emptied into the South China Sea. And they did have a CID detachment there, a couple of salty old gunnies. Um, 
but basically there was just an awful lot of stuff that we should have been looking after and weren't. So anyway, they put John up there. And what they did was they found an office for him with a little CB outfit called Construction Battalion Maintenance Unit 301. CBMU, unlike the normal CB battalions, was a permanent fixture. And if the airstrip got whole rocket holes in it, they fixed it. They looked after equipment. Uh, they fixed things, that sort of thing. Um, and I shared a Southeast Asia hooch with three CEC officers. Uh, that was the billeting and the office arrangement. The good part of it was that next door to us was one of the deployed CB battalions, usually, uh, usually from Pas Pascagoula, maybe. Um, okay, sure, that's yeah. where the CBs train, or, or yeah. where they're based anyway on the East Coast. Yeah, right, exactly. And and the good part was, uh, and you know, I have the most incredible respect for them. This, the CBs really knew how to get the job done. These are guys who just don't mess around. Mm -hmm. they, they're typical engineer brains. They think things through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, okay, we're going to be deploying an X number of months. Here's what we need to do, etc. And basically what it was, was the CBs went for, I think, six or eight months deployed. Mm -hmm. The guys who got it done were typically E5, um, fully qualified builders, mechanics, equipment operators, etc. The officers were more ensigns than anything else. They were fresh out of school, but they'd passed the course and they knew what they were doing. So the story was that um, I had a wardroom and the CO wouldn't even allow me to contribute to the fund. So we had a wardroom with Filipino stewards and uh, linen, good food. Wow. And the, the wardroom was, I don't know if you're familiar with this term, uh, stand-up slab construction is something you see a lot in the older Walmarts. Okay. Um, pour a slab on the ground and stand it up and fasten it. So our wardroom had eight-inch concrete walls. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Good protection. And the only flushing head in the whole of Northern i mm -hmm. They did it right. So I ate well. Um, I didn't sit at the right hand of the CO, but I sat at his table mm -hmm. and the, the dentist and the doctor and the rest and the officers. Um, so it was hardly a hardship tour in that respect, but it was definitely Indian country. They very graciously gave me a new M151 Alpha Jeep, like everyone else drove. Mm -hmm. It had U.S. Navy stenciling on the hood, but it had a PRC radio in it. And I had a typewriter and a desk and a wall, a wall locker to keep stuff in. Uh, I did not have a proper security container. When this pack sent me more stuff about all the wonderful technical gear they had, I immediately <laughs> burned it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
because I had a mailbox sure. at PO on the other side of the street and I had a photographer's mate available to me. I took my own pictures, which weren't all necessarily official, but he was more than happy to do the film for me and give me more. Um, so it, it was one of those rare instances where it was really well thought out. Yeah, good. In terms of, of support. But um, we got hit regularly. Um, there were nights when, uh, and, and people were dying. There were nights when uh, we'd get hit with 122 rockets pretty damn close by. And the drill was they blew the siren and you just bolted for the bunker outside the door. And usually the rockets came on rainy nights when the radar wasn't so good and the counter battery wasn't so effective. Mm -hmm. uh, so we'd dive into these bunkers that were built out of 55 gallon drums filled with sand, Marsden matting over the top, more sandbags, more sandbags around the edge. But we all know that a 55 gallon drum isn't real high off the ground. Right. So you dive in there, usually there's, you know, three or four inches of water. So you're in there in, in your skivvies um, and it's raining and the rockets are coming in and you ring in on the field phone and say, we're all accounted for. <laughs> and the reaction force does their thing. The CBs, the CBs had a section of the perimeter and they did a damn good job of defending it too. They took good care of their equipment. They trained regularly. I mean, I, I did my M60 training, my M79 training, learned to fire laws, learn how to safely throw frags, all of that stuff with the Seabees. Interesting. Because, yeah, the junior officer, I still remember, Ensign Battles. Battles was one of those Southern boys who loved, loved his fireworks. <laughs> He'd say, hey, Doug, are you busy? You want to go to the range? Yeah, why not? I'm just <laughs> typing a report. So, yeah, it, it, was, it was pretty down to earth. Um, and, and people were dying around us. And we, uh, Charlie Med was there. Uh, I don't remember any nurses there, but it was sort of the first stop for the Marines for guys who really hit bad after the battalion aid station. I had work there, but more typically, it was up the road. The CB Honcho was in Dong Ha, which was the last spot before the DMZ. Mm -hmm. Dong Ha airstrip was within artillery range. And the NBA had 130 millimeter guns that <laughs> were really good artillery. Um, it was not a real good place. Uh, the logistics for all of the westward country all came through Dong Ha because the Quaviat River uh, was the way to get it there. So you had LCMs and LCHs running up the river from Quaviat, where there was a small detachment. And Herm Hughes, who was one of the early representatives, was stationed there before he came the, the rep in Da Nang. But I digress. Um, so there was there were constant run of artillery ammunition, in particular, being offloaded at the river and trucked by motor T battalions to keep the guns firing. We had artillery at 
big artillery at the rock pile. Uh, LZ Stud was next door to that. Vandegrift Combat Base. Quezon when it was active. Uh, Camlo. And then the McNamara line, which is farther north. There wasn't an awful lot of big artillery there. Mostly it was farther back. But anyway, those were all places where uh, I got regular leads to go and run cases. The CID in, were in Dong Ha, as I recall, Marine CID, Third Marine CID. Decent, salty old NCOs who really didn't want anything to do with NIS at all. Um, the first time I visited there, the gunny pulled out a file and he threw some eight by tens on the page and he said, uh, this is a recent event we had here. Um, Marine went berserk and walked through his hooch with his M14 and drilled 12 guys. And he said, but we handled it. And he said, uh, I guess we could have called you if you really wanted, you, wanted to do this, but we didn't know where you were. <laughs> so, you know, you get the picture anyway. Sure. Uh, basically, my relationship with them was to say, guys, uh, we should be doing this together. I can't do it all. If you have category three stuff and they knew what that was, mm -hmm. for goodness sake, call me. Don't do category eight stuff either. It'll just get us all in trouble. Yeah. And they were cool with that. They didn't want any of that stuff anyway. Right. So category three being the espionage yeah. and category eight being uh, death cases, right? Well, sex. Se oh, sure. Sex crimes, of course. A person's crimes, basically. Exactly. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. And that was a big deal in the Navy in those days, really. Uh, you know, the memories of, of the Brits um, and our own homosexual compromises at the hand of the KGB was in the mind of everyone. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know this is a tender, tender topic these days, and I don't make excuses one way or the other. Mm -hmm. But it's just the, the way Navy it was. Felt, it, it was a risk, and the Navy felt very vulnerable about it. So they took it seriously. And uh, fortunately, the Marines didn't really care, and that was good. Uh, and we didn't have much of that. But usually, the only three type of stuff we got would be a, a suicide of a communicator. And there were a few, you know, mm -hmm. the guys with the clearances who are watching and reading this stuff and get a dear John and go and shoot themselves. So yeah, sure. It, I know you, you thought to. Um, so that was kind of a, you know, as an overview of what that part of the world was about. And I was present when the, the Marines started abandoning Vandegrift Combat Base. Hmm. Um, the 3rd Marine Division was going home to Okinawa. So this is about 1970? No, it was in the autumn of 69. 69, okay. We're still in the first year. Yeah, well, to give you the chronology, um, I reported in March. I took over the office hmm, June or July. Mm-hmm. And I was out of there by September, I guess, back to Da Nang. Wow. 
And the thing was, we still had case, we still had elements upstream, you know, um, the CBs were still there. Mm -hmm. And um, we had advisors. Um, we, the Coast Guard still sort of rambled around there and the Coast Guard were wonderful about giving us rides, by the way, mm -hmm. up and down the coast. They had 82 foot cutters. Okay. And it meant that we had to sleep on the deck. Lance Arnold and I used to, had a few times when we slept on the the cover on their uh, Boston Whaler, <laughs> share, sharing a poncho liner, you know. Yeah, sure. But anyway, um, and I, I, you know, I was, I was this. By that time that happened, the old hands who'd done the wandering around up north were mostly gone. So mm -hmm. it was me who knew his way around, and I didn't want it all to myself by any means. And other guys did it from time to time mm -hmm. but i became a lot more apprehensive about working up there just because there weren't marines mm -hmm. the 101st airborne were there and and uh with all respect to them they're a great outfit but they were in a sh they were shambolic when i got there yeah. um, the warrant officer cid agents were just overwhelmed with fraggings and and mm. um Thefts. So, uh, Doug, there was a degradation on the Army side of the house, but Marines stayed pretty consistent of, you know, as far as their, the way they acted in country. Um, yep. Yep. There was. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad you raised it. Um, Marines, uh, you know, we just did not have a lot of major crimes with the shooters. The 1st Marine Division was down south, the Arizona area, Anwa. Mm -hmm. Ugly, nasty country, engaged constantly with the NVA. The 3rd Marine Division had the NVA up north. And basically, Marines stay out of trouble when they're out killing things. Mm -hmm. That's what they do. Um, my cases were predominantly league cases. and. I mean, we can discuss that if you really want to, but um, they they weren't trouble-free by any means, but the Marines kept their stuff together. And if you visited a, a forward battalion, I visited two, four, and one, nine, and other elements of the regiment quite a few times, but mm. never... Uh, because, you know, calling for help was always because of a lead or an issue of some sort. And um, the discipline was evident. If you saw a platoon come in, somewhere in the middle was a, a lieutenant, you probably didn't know who he was, and a radioman not far away. But these guys were not indisciplined at all. They were filthy. Their ass was hanging out of their utilities. Their boots were falling off. They were skinny. They were dirty and, and insect bitten, but they were joking and grab assing like Marines do right up to the front. You know, ha ha, did you see that NBA I shot in the head with the law yesterday? That was pretty funny. Uh, that's the Marines. And I, you know, I can't say enough about them. I, they're, I, I always 
preferred to work with the Marines, no matter where they were. And it stretched from the top down. If you went, if you went to see a Marine battalion commander, you could be sure to be assured of a couple of things. The sergeant major would greet you courteously, want to know generally what the issue was. And I always told him, and he'd say, sir, I have a seat. I've got a chair here you can sit in. And those were a commodity. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll have a cup of coffee for you in a minute or a cold drink. Mm-hmm. And he'd go off to see the CO. And 10 minutes later, I'd be in there 100% straight down the line. What do we need to do? How do we need to support you? What are the issues? What do I need to do? Mm-hmm. Sometimes who else knows about this? And you can understand that too. Sure. Um, and then the Sergeant Major made sure that I was safe and secure, had a place to sleep, was fed, um, made arrangements for wherever I needed to go next. One, uh, more than once, I actually rode in Marine convoys through the Arizona Territory mm-hmm. because the flying weather was bad. And they put me in a Jeep with a, a couple of salty NCOs who were loaded to the teeth and with a, a, a Amtrak in front of and and uh, a three-quarter ton full of Marines behind me and armor on both ends. Sure. That's the Marines. Right. So now there's a comma here. The support elements to the Marines, uh, the logistics troops mm-hmm. were just not the same at all. And Remember that we had draftees in the Marine Corps. Mm. I didn't know much about it until I got there, but there were uh, some of McNamara's infamous Project 100 Marines there. Mm. And, and, and they did cause trouble. And there are well-recorded episodes of mutiny at the Marine Brig. Um, these are the guys where we had problem, serious racial issues Mm-hmm. Um, we had black Marines throwing frags into a USO that was full of white Marines because they pulled their own out first. We had uh, chapters of what they called the Mama, M-A-W-M-A-W, which was supposed to be Mau Mau as in Kenya. But these guys didn't know where Africa was, let alone where Kenya was. They just knew that they were supposed to be trading up for the war that was coming back in the States. And they were dangerous. Um, And the poor old Brigadier General in charge of FLC really had his hands full. Marine CID there were good guys. They knew they were definitely in over their heads and they called us always. but I mean, I worked cases out there constantly and it was stupid stuff, you know, stealing roofing iron and taking it out of the ville for services from Mamasan. You know, how smart is that? <laughs> I actually, you know, I went to the gate and I checked the log. What time did this five ton truck go out the gate and who was driving it? <laughs> how smart is that? <laughs> oh, wow. wow. Highly trained investigator doing his job. <laughs> Well, my point is, FLC and some of the peripherals there 
were bad. And there were there was one artillery unit that got real bad at the end there too. Forgive me, I can't remember. Is it the 11th Marines that's with 1st Marine Division? Yes. 11th Marines on a fire base. I won't name names or any of the rest of it, but they actually had a an element there that was prepared to blow up the magazines mm-hmm. on the fire base. Wow. How smart is that? Wow. Uh, things were not good. They didn't like the gunnery sergeant, who is a Latino mm-hmm. and a really good guy. Um, we had that. We had a little bit of white collar crime, currency manipulation with uh, Marines at the RNR Center because they had access to US dollars instead of military payment certificates. Mm. So you see the opportunity there was to take uh, green and make 100%, get the MPC back, spend it on something at the PX and sell it to someone else. You know, right. lots of ways to do it. So that was kind of, kind of where it was. The 101st, they did a great job um, and and they, they were always an Indian country. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Asha Valley, just one of those spots you didn't want to be. Right. And they were out there forever. I mean, uh, I didn't have a lot to do with them. I used to see them, um, wave to them when I was driving alongside the road. I actually have an amazing picture of a 101st black captain with his Arvin counterpart next to him as an advisor mm-hmm. near Fubai. And his, it, was, it was in October. And the only reason I know that is because his radio operator had a plastic jack-o'-lantern hanging off his radio pack. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. And, and I said, oh, I guess I don't have much to worry about here if they're not worried about visibility. But yeah, uh, the 101st and the 1st of the 5th mechanized was, um, they were the muscle up there. They provided um, all the light armor. Mm-hmm. And when I, when I drive to, to Vandegrift, these guys would be parked with their tanks alongside the road with a hammock slung under the tracks because they'd been up all night. Mm-hmm. Um, cocked and locked with barbed wire around them, concertina wire, and one guy on watch. Mm-hmm. Um, those guys really did it hard, and most of them were draftees, and they weren't happy. And having the Marines go was not exactly an improvement to everyone's R and R. Sorry, uh, general morale. Um, the one thing, the one thing that everyone said was. I don't want to be the last poor sucker who gets killed in Vietnam. Yeah. And that was a pretty strong attitude. Sure. So good question. Yeah. So what, um, what, uh, at the, when the Marines left, was there a movement to take you out of Da Nang and bring you back to uh, Saigon? What was the next step? Well, an interesting thing happened. There was a little bit of that. Um, I was trying to decide what the hell I was going to do after my first year. Mm-hmm. And we had a, a GS 12 back in Washington, whose name I won't mention. Okay. 
who had responsibility for all that stuff. And uh, I thought I wanted to go to Sasebo. Um, people had said lots of nice things about it, small office. What I really wanted to do is sort of decompress and live out on the economy and uh, turn human again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was a, an awful lot of convulsion that continued throughout my three years there about uh, closing down assignments, uh, duty stations, and all the rest. Sasebo started appearing to be less a possibility, and the risks of being sent to someplace like Okinawa that I definitely did not want to go to mm-hmm. um, increased. So I said, uh, I'll extend for six months. Let's see what happens. Right. And they said, where would you like to go? And I said, I think I'd like to go to Cameron Bay. Mm. Uh, Cameron Bay was uh, a pretty amazing logistics forefront. Huge, huge airstrips that have been built by RMK, BRJ, who were Lyndon Johnson's Texas construction buddies. Uh, I mean, C5 type airstrip. And Deepwater Piers, all of the ammunition for two corps came in there. Um, the Navy had uh, a facility there where they actually had the first of their porpoise uh, protection set up. Uh, there was a big comm stay there and a naval support activity and a naval air facility. So to explain that, the, the porpoise protection activity, that's the where the divers work with uh, dolphins. Exactly. Um, and, and they had trained them to detect uh, yep. enemy know, swimmers. Interme- yeah. Enemy swimmers, okay. It was, it was very, it was spooky stuff. I mean, yeah. I didn't even know about the program. I knew where the facility was. Right. And I knew there were lots of uh, NSW type guys hanging around there, but they didn't cause me any trouble. Mm-hmm. So I was smart enough to know just to stay away. Mm-hmm. Um, it was an important place. Um, and it, it was not a, a hotbed of activity. There was Larry Farrell was the agent there. Oh, Larry, great guy. Yeah. Larry was an outlaw in his first year there. I'm not going to tell you any war stories, but Larry was banished to Cameron Bay after an incident that we won't go into. Okay. Um, and, and, uh, and, you know, close friend. Yeah. So I thought, hey, this isn't going to be too bad. I'll run a few leads. Uh, there's a nice beach. They tell me there are nurses there. Uh, even though I've got Quinion with Navy again and a few outlying posts, it should be a nice change. And I'm all by myself. I like working by myself. It was good. So off I went. Um, first week of April. And uh, I got there and Larry had his bags packed. That was the handover said, here's your bunk. There are lots of good novels here. Here's the office. Here's a combination of the safe. I said, what's in the safe? And he said, nothing. Um, I said, that's good. And Larry caught the evening flight back to Saigon. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. That's good. So yeah, I uh, basically, I, I introduced myself to the commands there. I was billeted in the Naval support activity. 
which mm -hmm. was, you know, the usual stuff. Um, there was a little SEAL uh, training detachment outside the gate. They trained LDNM, which is the Vietnamese SEALs, and, and okay. they were good. They were okay. very good. Uh, we had a comp stay up the, up the road a little bit. They were all very civilized, as those mm -hmm. guys tend to be. Uh, and the Naval Air Facility with an 06, who had his own C-117. And that, to you and me, is a super DC-3. Okay. He might have had two of them. I can't remember. Um, and the Naval Support Activity actually supplied uh, the aerial support for the Navy elements in the Delta, too, which meant that they had a small detachment at Thompson in Saigon with helos, typically. Okay. Um, they had a JAG officer at the air facility. Um, there was a, an ASA element assigned there. This all sounds very strange, I know, but ASA took over the P2s, the Neptunes, okay. from the Navy for their mission. I don't know what it was, and I don't want to know type of thing. <laughs> and there were a whole lot of C CW4s and 5s, salty old boys, who were fixed-wing pilots, mm -hmm. even though they'd taken the caribous away two years previous. Okay. Um, so it was a very interesting composite. And they had a nice O club. There were revetments around, but, you know, they just didn't have much trouble. They didn't. They, they, once a year, maybe they got a rocket attack or something. It was sure. kind of a nice backwater. As soon as I got there, all of that changed. Um, <laughs> maybe because, well, I don't even want to go into that. Narcotics, in particular. Yeah. Uh, you know, the master at arms was getting concerned. There was lots of indications of lots of, lots of, uh, cannabis and some opium and similar stuff in the barracks and mm -hmm. which got the 06 very excited um and there were calls for intervention and all the rest of it and i i basically said well you know you've got masters at arms i'll stand by you do command authorized search if you think you've got probable cause and that smell that i hear comes out of there tells me that you do I, I used to train them by burning cannabis with a Bunsen burner. Okay, so they, so they could smell the smell. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, this it all felt like downhill from there. Um, and and we had a similar problem down at the, at the Naval Support Activity. I stayed there because I liked my office. I, uh, the office that Larry had was taken over by the Vietnamese, so I couldn't stay there. Okay. Well, I moved down to the beach where the Coast Guard were. <laughs> <laughs> Much better and, office. Yeah, shared their office with them. I had Coast Guard and the NILO, the Naval Intelligence Liaison Officer, who didn't know anything about intelligence. But he had a, a Jeep and a nice dog, and we were good friends. And me and my security container moved in there, and on the beach, I could see it out the window. It was 20 meters away. Mm -hmm. And I thought, hey, this is pretty good. But then we got a new chaplain in. And the chaplain was a Jesuit. And he was a butt kicker. Oh, this wow. guy had a reputation for being so bad, the SEALs would invite, them out, invite him out with them. 
<laughs> and needless to say, all these crybabies who used to go and visit the chaplet and say, oh, father, I've got a problem. <laughs> He'd say, yeah, you do now. <laughs> See that door over there? That's Mr. Hubbard. He's a special agent. You go tell him what you've been doing. <laughs> oh, do I have to? <laughs> anyway, we won't go into the Hail Marys and all the rest, but I have these dudes uh, lined up outside my door. Mm -hmm. And I take a statement, do the command authorized search. You know the story. Yeah. Um, it got to be real boring, real fast. <laughs> oh, man. oh, man. Yeah. So uh, I didn't have any way to get my cases to Saigon. The communication station was compromised by dopers, of course. Um, I used to be able to send it chief to chief to the comm stay in Saigon, and that didn't work anymore. So I just started on Friday afternoon. I'd tell the CO at the Naval Air Facility that I wanted to ride down on the C-117. Mm -hmm. So I flew on the Goonie Bird down to Saigon on Friday afternoon, just like I'd done in Quang Tree, carried all my cases down, um, met with the boss on Friday and Saturday and got my leads and cases and caroused around a little bit. And then Sunday afternoon, got back on the plane and flew back up. Um, mm -hmm. I was working for a guy named Bernard Charles Taylor. And Bernie Taylor had been at Niso, Washington with me, he'd been in Okinawa before, pretty much knew what he was doing. Uh, he married a Vietnamese girl, which caused some problems with his career, um, but he was good to work for. Basically, he didn't mess with me at all. Um, we had a good rapport. Bernie left, and he was replaced by an incredible dude named F.F. Givens, Fred Givens. Fred Givens. Fred Givens, Texas Ranger. There are stories mm -hmm. about Texas, about Fred Givens at Camp Lejeune that we won't discuss now, but but Fred was the real deal. Mm -hmm. he, Fred, if you've ever seen a picture of him, he, Fred was about uh, 5'10", and he weighed about 180 pounds, and he and Art Newman pushed weights every afternoon. Um, Fred was a good family man. Um, Steely cold blue eyes. You didn't want those set on you. Uh, Fred, I watched Fred um, arrest a, a Navy SEAL lieutenant on an airliner coming back from Sydney. And I tell you, the SEAL's feet didn't even touch the ground. He was out of there. Fred, Fred, um, Fred used to play with us, but only in a, in a gentle sort of way. We we played pretty hard. We had a couple of restaurants there that served uh, good French cuisine um, that we sort of took over, to be honest with you. And Fred would come along and maybe have a beer and make sure that we got home safely. Right. But one night, one night when we were there, he was telling a story about when he was a state trooper in Texas. And he said, I was chasing a felon in my 58 Ford Interceptor and I blew through a roadblock and I knocked all four door handles off. And Andy Lambert, the late Andy Lambert, you may, Andy's another, the second heartbreak suicide 
from Vietnam who replaced me at Cameron Bay. Andy Lambert made the mistake of laughing. And Fred took umbrage with that. So, you know, you don't believe me. And like, you don't believe I was a pretty good wheel man. And Andy laughed it off. Andy was a funny guy, really nice guy, very close, like a brother to me. But I sensed that something wasn't quite right with Fred. And we left that place after curfew, as usual, and got into the G car, uh, which was a, a V8 Ford sedan that was supposed to be the CO's, but wasn't a uh, stick shift. Mm -hmm. Fred gets into the car and fires it up and we've got a mile and a half or two through Saigon at night with roadblocks and Fred drives in reverse and Andy was in the back seat Andy was in tears I didn't mean it I didn't mean it please <laughs> so he goes so backwards all the way through Saigon all the way through all wow. the way through that's right. That was Fred. Fred, Fred, uh, wow, they don't make many of them like Fred. <laughs> he was a great boss. And I actually was happy to go back to Saigon and work for him. Um, Fred had been an FCI guy before. And that's really what I wanted to do. I, I was heartily sick of all this, this penny ante stuff. Some of it was important, the fraggings and the rest. And we did have fraggings, Saigon, but um, Fred passed me on to people who could sort of help me get back into his circle, and it never worked. Uh -huh. um, simply, it became a numbers game. Um, at the peak, there were 20 of us in the country, including two SRAs and a supervising agent. So you had 17 agents, maybe 15 of whom are fit or able to work, and 550,000 American troops in the country. So um, I, by that time, the 1630s had 1630s and 35s who were doing advisory work with the, our counterparts, the Vietnamese Naval Security Bloc. Mm -hmm. and collecting some pretty good stuff. I didn't see any of it, didn't want to see it either. Um, but we'd virtually given up our whole role there and it was incredibly important. Right. Um, force protection was different then, but it was still really important. And we were depending on the army. I mean, the army, the army had, I think 200 enlisted CID agents just in Saigon. Wow. The 525 MI detachment who was interfaced with Phoenix, I can't imagine. I would imagine they had a thousand people in country. Wow. Uh, and, and we had 20. Wow. And, 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 and the guys who were there originally, I mean, the Maynard Andersons and those guys who, you know, Maynard used to, Maynard used to play tennis with the ambassador. Maynard was connected. Maynard, Maynard was welcomed at the circle sportif. Maynard knew how to get things done. Mm -hmm. He was not a field guy, never was, but he was awfully good at what he did. And he had some guys working for him who were just brilliant. 
who uh, went out and got it done, you know, intercepting arms shipments and stuff like this. Um, so anyway, no FCI. And I was working with Fred Gibbons. Um, and we were starting to get fraggings and major thefts and stuff like that. So it was pretty okay. I was going to ask, uh, can we take a 10 minute oh, break? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I was going to ask you if it's been, we've been going for two hours and nine minutes now. So, well, I'm good uh, to go after, I'm good to go after if you want to. All right, um, let's do that. But uh, I'll, I'll just make a head call and get a cup of coffee. All right. Let me, uh, let me just pause the recording and okay. we will, uh, we'll come back in, in about 10 minutes. How's that sound? Perfect. Doug, I, 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 I know we got to Saigon, got back to Saigon, but uh, I want to regress back uh, to Da Nang. I, I think it's where it happened, but the shooting of Kathy Warren, who was a entertainment dancer. I'm not sure if she was USO or not, but can you tell that story? Because that was in your book. And I think that, People appreciate that. And I just want to say again that there's so many more stories in the book that people should really get this book and read it because it's just a fascinating, um, you know, account of what went on in Vietnam from a criminal investigator standpoint. So if you could tell the Kathy Warren story, that'd be great. Kathy Warren's was part of a small group of Australian USO entertainers who came and did the circuit in Vietnam, typically what they did would they would, uh, they would go to a venue like Da Nang or Saigon or Cameron Bay. And then they, they would go to uh, particular commands where they have a club or an outside facility and put on a show. And, and Kathy was a, a pretty 20 year old blonde who uh, had already made a mark in the TV industry in New South Wales and Sydney. So uh, there were, the Australians in Vietnam particularly loved her, the Australian contingent in the South. But she came to Da Nang and um, they sent her to Camp Reasoner, which was where uh, Force Recon was situated uh, just outside of uh, Da Nang, away from other Marine Corps elements, needless to say. And uh, there was a second female, uh, a drummer, guitar player. I think that was about it, four or five of them anyway. And they, they went to the club at Camp Reasoner, which was, uh, I guess you'd describe it as kind of a, a timber frame with uh, thatching on it, uh, native thatching. Uh, some plywood, plywood on the floor and fly screens so that there'd be some ventilation. And they, they uh, began their performance and Kathy was out in front of them singing and all of a sudden just dropped to the deck, dead. Um, she'd been shot from some considerable distance, 50 yards, I would say, uh, by a Marine with uh, a very strange weapon, uh, a high standard 22 long barrel pistol with a silencer of the type that was built for OSS during the war. Didn't have any grips left on it, but it certainly still worked. Um, 
So she was hit with a 22 round. It, her arms were up at the time. It hit her under the left arm, hit her armpit, went through her lungs, hit her aorta, exited the other side, and the bullet fell on the on the floor just as she did. So she, I mean, she died pretty much instantly. Um, there were concerns initially that there might have been an enemy attack or something, but the Marines knew the signs and, and uh, they battened down pretty quickly, told everyone to stay exactly where they were, called us, um, started trying to figure out what was going on. Basically, it was a fairly prolonged process to develop the leads necessary. Uh, the perpetrator actually fired using the fork of a mango tree that was some distance away to stabilize the weapon. Mm. He was alone. Um, but as it turned out, after we had done lineups and similar um, and interviewed many people many times, uh, we developed an informant who gave us some information about some of the conversations that had been occurring during and before the incident. And those pointed to our eventual suspect who was ultimately charged with her murder. Um, he was eventually acquitted by the Court of Military Appeals, as I recall, not because of anything we did, but it, it was procedural and that happened quite often during the Vietnam War. Um, we had a pretty good record of the JAG did not. Um, that's another topic entirely, sure. but it was a, a very sad incident. Um, I, uh, I attended her post-mortem, so I felt like I kind of knew her even better than I wanted to when that was finished and was pretty sad about the whole thing. About the only good thing I can say about it is that the Australians built their own Vietnam Memorial near their war memorial in Canberra and they inscribed her name on the wall along with all the 500 and so diggers, Australian infantrymen who were killed during the Vietnam War. So that's the, the sad tale of you know, the amazing thing about listening to this story about the Australian dancer who is killed performing for the troops is just the sadness of it all. And still, you can tell from when you, when you interview him, it still bothers him a little bit. On the next episode of NCIS Reports in the Field, we'll continue our discussions with Doug Hubbard his incredible adventure in Vietnam. The war is going to take a downturn and Doug has got to make a decision that will change his life. But as they say, one door closed opens another. He's somewhat of a Humphrey Bogart. I like to say that he reminds me of Rick at Rick's place in Casablanca. Because you'll find out in the next episode where he goes to next and the adventures that he will live. If you like this episode, please follow us on your favorite podcast, wherever that may be, and give us that five-star rating. It helps us.